0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Tanya Reynolds. She's an assistant professor in psychology at the University of New Mexico, whose research focuses on women's intrasexual competition, biases in moral evaluations, and social and sexual selection. Ancestrally, men needed to go to war and hunt. Given this, it would be rather useful to be friends with the spear-wielding bloke next to you, so that you know he's got your back. Women's use case for friends, however, is much more subtle and difficult to determine, and today we try to decipher the underpinnings of female friendships. Expect to learn why women dislike working underneath a female boss, the painful social existence that very attractive women have to endure, why both men and women bias seeing women as victims and men as perpetrators, why women develop opposite-sex friendships, the most common ways women derogate their rivals, why sexual gossip is a ruthless precision-engineered tool, and much more. This episode is very, very interesting, and it was the subject of today's newsletter, actually. So if you want to go and sign up to that and get a list of 100 life-changing books for free go to chriswillx.com slash books. There's an entire list of them and reasons about why I like them and links to go and get them and little descriptions and stuff. Uh, and you can get it right now. chriswillx.com slash books. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Tanya Reynolds. Among over 11,600 U.S. employees, women were less satisfied with their jobs when they reported to a female boss, whereas men showed no difference in job satisfaction based on their supervisor's gender. Why do you think that is?
1: So I think this goes back to the challenges faced by our female ancestors. Throughout human history, a larger percentage of social groups were patrilocal meaning that when women were married, they left their families to go live with their husbands. And so this would have been particularly challenging for ancestral women because they were surrounded by individuals with whom they weren't genetically related. And we know that it's harder to form cooperative relationships with non-kin compared to kin. And so I've thought about, okay, well how might women have navigated these relationships? How might they have recruited allies in these contexts? And Dave Geary has made the argument that one way women might have formed cooperative bonds in these contexts is through either reciprocal altruism or mutualism. So meaning they're forming relationships based on shared goals or exchanging benefits in a tit for tat manner. And so if you look at what are the contexts that allow those types of relationships to succeed, it tends to be when relationship partners have symmetrical levels of power and resources. And so I think one way to think about this might be, what would it look like if say there was a huge asymmetry in resources between partners? So say a famous celebrity tried to form a cooperative relationship with an unhoused person or a homeless person. This would be very challenging because they it would be quite unlikely that they'd have mutually aligned goals. And over time, you would expect that this relationship would devolve into either um, kind of exploitation or just kind of, you know, a unilateral extraction of resources. So leeching on another person's resources. And indeed, that's what mathematicals find is that when partners diverge in power and resources, the cooperative bonds kind of um, they're no longer mutually beneficial. It's one partner taking advantage of the other partner. And so if these are the conditions that uphold reciprocal altruism, what I suspect is that women throughout human history upheld their reciprocal bonds with unrelated same-sex women under such conditions such that they preferred contexts where they were of equal power and equal resources and too strong of deviations would have led to conflict and kind of corroded the relationship and so i think that this can become problematic in modern contexts where there are clear demarcations in status and resources or in contexts, say where we have social media and we could observe the lives of people who deviate strongly from us and their social conditions that basically these deviations might be more corrosive to women's same-sex relationships if, throughout human history, our female ancestors were forming cooperative bonds with one another under conditions of symmetry.
0: Why is that not the same case for men?
1: So, great question. Throughout human history, our male ancestors were more often involved in coalitionary contexts, so they were forming larger groups both for the context of hunting, but also I think more consequentially for the context of warfare. And so when you form these large groups, um, there tends to be, especially in warfare, there's an advantage to having larger numbers. So a numerical advantage. So having more men kind of on your team is advantageous. And so in these contexts, what helps is a strong hierarchy. This is really useful for organizing large groups and it's really helpful for kind of a chain of command to organize an attack. So if every man out on the battlefield is kind of going with his own whims, that is really uncoordinated. So if we think of a modern context of warfare, I think the (laughs) one example might be football, kind of an analog. There is a clear line of command in which there's the coach and then maybe the quarterback reads the plays and everyone knows what the game plan is and that leads to success on the field so too is the case in warfare where you need a strong chain of command to organize the attack and so you also need beyond just a chain of command you also need specialization so not every man is going to be equally talented in every role so maybe there's one guy who's great at throwing the spears one guy who's great at making the spears one guy who's great at kind of coming up with the strategy and so having these this role specialization is really useful for large groups because then you can maximize your talent and so if men throughout human history were more often in Competing in these group based contexts, then they stood to gain from asymmetries in power, insofar as that meant their group was going to be more organized and cohesive and successful on the battlefield. And so I think this group component is really important because what that meant is that for our male ancestors, if they were successful, they all lived, and the genetic data suggests they reproduced with the local women, which is not you know pleasant to think about but that's what the evidence suggests and so there were reproductive benefits but also just survival and then for the men who lost it wasn't just losing a football match it was death you got slaughtered potentially the people back home got slaughtered so there was a lot on the line and so what that meant is men stood to gain if there were asymmetries in power, that led to success on the battlefield. Likewise, they stood to gain by having same-sex peers on their team who may have been more talented and who may have been rewarded with status. So if you were on a football team and your quarterback is phenomenal and he gets more status than you do, you might still be happy because your team wins as a whole, even if he is relatively better off
0: there's a trickle-down effect of his his ability to help you. And because men, it seems, were more coalitional, that benefits everybody overall in terms of survival and reproduction. Whereas with women, it seems like they didn't need this coalitional thing so much. You would have had women presumably competing, some a little bit of polygyny perhaps going on. So you would have had co-wives of one particular person. You would have had all of the concerns you have around child rearing. Uh, Joyce Benenson was on the show a little while ago, and obviously she's done that great work to do with uh, tennis. She's studying tennis players at the moment. Have you seen this most recent stuff? So she's moved on from female sports teams, and she's now obsessing over tennis players. And she's looking at what happens after a match between male male and female female tennis players uh, the amount of physical contact that they have uh, the sort of body language the kind of words that they use presumably to describe how the match went and uh, you'll be familiar with the work that she's done but for the people that aren't um it seems like in sports teams men who compete against other male teams that compete against other male teams show both more cohesion within the competition itself amongst their own team. And then once the game's over, they're more happy to be uh, physically and sort of verbally um, collaborative and and complimentary with their uh, opponents. Females during sports games seem to show both more disdain for their own side and for the other side as well. Like they're just not really friends with anybody at all. And I think female intersexual competition for me has been such a like an ob- obsessively interesting topic. It's so much more female competition and friendships is way more interesting than male competition and friendships, I think. Uh, it's just there's more nuanced and there's a lot more going on. I'm very, very glad that I'm not a female. Like trying to navigate the world of female friendships to me seems Unbelievably difficult. Is that right to say? Is it right to say that female friendships are more complex than male friendships? Do you think?
1: I think so. Um, I've, I've become increasingly interested in how women form cooperative relationships because I, for so long, focused on the competitive aspect of it and the cooperative part. I also find very interesting because it's they're intertwined. So, as you're saying, you know, tying into Joyce Benenson's work, yeah, she's found that cooperative competition tends to corrode female relationships more than men's like men can more easily return to cooperation following competition than can women she finds it in little kids um she finds it in adult athletes where that's an explicit goal of the activity um but yeah there's other work showing that yeah um in For female relationships, they tend to dissolve if there's more competition in it, and male relationships aren't as corroded by it. And in fact, I think if anything, it seems like there can be a positive aspect to competing with your male friends. And so, yeah, there's just so much more overt interactions happening in male same sex relationships, whereas for women's, it seems to be a lot more kind of under the surface things, all these dynamics that are happening that aren't explicitly acknowledged. And so I've started to look at, you know, what are the conditions under which women form friendships? And it seems that the some of the transgressions that they would most get upset about, that would most compromise their same-sex friendships are perceiving another woman as unkind or perceiving her as not personally committed to to you. And so I think that this makes sense if we think about our female ancestors, if they were in these patrilocal contexts, they were surrounded by unrelated women. They had to figure out who they could trust. And one cue is just someone who's kind. On average, that's someone who's going to be a generous and forgiving exchange partner. So if you mess up, they won't hold it against you. I was
0: going to say, what, what, what's kind mean?
1: Kind, meaning um, altruistic, pro-social, generous, supportive. um, Yeah, kind in that sense, nice. Um, And the ethnographic data support it too. So if you look at um, what they've looked at with female adolescents, basically in order to be popular as a female, you have to be super nice Otherwise, other girls will hate you. They won't let you be popular. They'll really resent you and envy you. So you have to display, at least what that's what they find in these ethnographies among female adolescents, you have to display strong cues of niceness. Um, and indeed, that's the trait that women report as most important in a friend. Um, men value it too, but just not to the same degree. And then the other thing that we find is that women tend to get upset if their friends aren't personally loyal to them. So we used examples, um, we tested this by looking at what transgressions would upset them. And it was things like you know, forgetting it was your birthday, not asking you about how your family's doing, um, never being the first to reach out to you, you always have to reach out to them. And so I think this also makes sense because if we think about our female ancestors trying to figure out who they can trust, well, whoever is giving off cues of personal commitment and loyalty and devotion is going to be someone you can more confidently trust. And our female ancestors had a lot at stake because if another woman became disloyal to them, that could mean a reputational attack. And it could be something like spreading a rumor that you're cheating on your husband. And if your husband believes it, that could mean your death Or he abandons you and you no longer have access to his resources and support, nor do your children. So there's a lot on the line in terms of reputational loyalty. But also, if women were helping out with one another's um, provisioning to children, then if another female really disliked you, that could lead to harm to your child, maybe in the form of negligence or Spiteful harm. Um, now I'm not sure how often that happened. So there is some evidence among the Dogon people in Mali that at least among co-wives, there were a lot of rumors that they were poisoning one another's children. And so what this meant is like interpo- interpersonal loyalty was a really big deal for our female ancestors, and perhaps not to the same degree as our male ancestors. So our male ancestors, I suspect would have cared more about whether the man was loyal to the group because that predicted the group's success. Whereas if he you know, was your best friend, that's not as important. What's important is that he doesn't defect or commit treason. And so there's an asymmetry here in kind of the importance of interpersonal loyalty.
0: Joyce also taught me about this sort of um, veneer of egalitarianism that happens Mm -hmm. among women. And the reason for that being that any one girl that uh, kind of seems to be rising up too much above everybody else is treated pretty poorly. And that resonates exactly with what you said there. In order to be the most popular girl in school, you have to over-deliver on niceness because popularity and not niceness are negatively correlated. Like if you were someone that wasn't nice, you're immediately going to be pulled back down.
1: Right, and it makes sense that women would care about niceness and kind of popularity and status driving because you could imagine that if there were, if you were trying to form a relationship with a woman who was very status driving or very competitive, she might feel that she's entitled to more resources than you, or she might abandon you for another female friend who's going to benefit her more strongly. And so there were potential potential risks to forming cooperative relationships with women who were really status driving and competitive and so it would make sense that in these modern contexts we see kind of disdain for those patterns Um, there's some evidence uh, i believe it's rudman's study that found that women preferred another woman who was self-effacing rather than self-promoting and i think you see a lot of this these patterns in women's same-sex relationships where I've noticed this anecdotally that you can't, you cannot brag. And if you, um, receive a compliment, you have to kind of undermine it. So someone, if someone compliments your hair, you need to be like, Oh my God, no, I haven't washed it in days. It's so oily. I can't like, Oh my God, no, you have to let almost like undermine the compliment um they, they poke fun at this in the movie mean girls which i think just got female interactions pretty spot on um, but there are data to support this so women tend to engage in this pattern of co-rumination in their friendships where they tend to get into these conversations where it's kind of rehashing problems um, it's really focusing on vulnerabilities and your setbacks, you're reanalyzing, you know, why did my boyfriend break up with me? Or, you know, why was, why does she not like me? So it's just like this really negative problem focused discussion. And so you tend to see this more often in women's relationships. And I think it makes sense because it's the exact opposite of bragging. Instead of focusing on all the things that are going well in your life, which might signal that you're a threat and you're competitive and you're status driving, you're focusing on everything that's not going well in your life. And this tends to be associated with closeness in women. And I think that one reason women do this is because it signals that they're not a threat. You're focusing on everything that's going wrong. And then a second reason that I think women do this is it's basically by sharing all your vulnerabilities, you are it's an honest display of commitment because you're giving someone personal information that they could later use against you. And so by offering that up, you're basically kind of locking yourself in. It increases the risk of defecting that if we get into a fight later on, you can now use all this dirt that I told you about myself. And so I suspect that women respond quite warmly to these types of disclosures compared to the opposite, where you know it's just telling you everything that's going well and how strong and wonderful my relationship is, as an example.
0: Well, I can imagine, given how complex female relationships are, that performative vulnerability could be something that's used, or tactical vulnerability. This is a piece of information which, in the wrong hands, oh no, I really hope that someone doesn't find out about this. But in reality, you wouldn't really care uh, and I suppose uh, – who is it that did the work about venting? Is that um, – it's not Candace I- Blake.
1: Is it Jamie Krems?
0: Jamie Krems. Thank you very much. Uh, so she did that. I also got – the thing that it's made me think about is um, – David Putz's work where he looked at the vocal pitch of men when they were around men who are higher in status or lower in status than them and if it's a man who's significantly higher in status the other man tends to raise his vocal pitch a little bit and that's the exact same thing i'm not a threat listen to how puny my vocal folds are you have absolutely nothing to worry about from me please do not smash me into the ground and then the converse happens and it happens even more if there is a woman around if there's a woman present, both men drop their vocal pitch more and more and more to try and sort of give off this uh, auditory, um, aggressive sound, I guess, this sort of uh, competition they've got going on. Talking about things going well and things going badly, you did some research about men's suffering and people's responses to it as well. Mm -hmm. What was that?
1: Yeah, so that was, the theoretical framework was based on Kurt Gray's work, and he has looked at In the domain of moral psychology, he's looked at moral typecasting, which is this tendency to he argues that when we perceive a moral action, we kind of instinctively classify people as either the perpetrator or the victim. So we have this dyadic heuristic when we perceive moral actions. And so we took that framework and we looked at, okay, might there be a gender bias in our tendency to place men and women in the victim and perpetrator categories. And so across a series of studies, what we found was that we more instinctively classify women as victims and men as perpetrators. And so Kurt Gray's model argues that when you classify someone as a perpetrator, it makes it more challenging to see them as a victim and vice versa. So if you classify someone as a victim, it's harder to see them as a perpetrator. And so these roles are pretty consequential because they're associated with sympathy and blame. And so what we found is that congruent with these, this typecasting, we found that people more easily blame men than women, and they more easily feel sympathy for women than men.
0: Is that and- both men and women feel that?
1: Yes, we did find, in some of our studies, we found that women showed the bias to a stronger degree than did men, but we didn't find that super consistently. Um, And so I think that this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because if we think about reproduction, women set the upper limit. So women contribute, they basically bring more to the reproductive table. They're more valuable. Exactly, and so if you have a group with very few women, you are not going to have many babies being produced compared to if you have a group with a lot of women, you really only need a couple of men to still produce many babies. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of
0: men having an absolutely fantastic time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they would be very delighted until (laughs) an enemy group comes in and then they have to...
0: Having a bad time.
1: Yep, yep. So probably wouldn't last long. But exactly. So women are more reproductively valuable. So I think it, it makes sense that we might have these biases to kind of protect women from harm, but this can be really problematic when we might be less likely to recognize men's suffering. So um, I think when we think about the distribution of social outcomes, we tend to focus at the top end of the distribution where we might recognize like, oh, women are less often CEOs, less, less often world leaders. This is certainly true. But when you look at the bottom end of the distribution, men are more often homeless more often um, imprisoned more often drop dropping out of school they're more likely to die by suicide die by drug overdose so men aren't thriving at this side of the societal distribution. And so I think in this case, it can be really problematic that we don't recognize or less easily recognize men as victims and have less sympathy for their suffering.
0: You see this reflected in IQ distribution as well, right? That you have more men at the top and more men at the bottom. And it's kind of the same. The men are just, who is it that said, might've been David Buss that said, uh, men are evolution's playthings that you just you roll the dice with them a little bit more. There's more genetic variation. We'll see what happens. They're kind of more disposable because, as you say, it's women that set the upper bound in terms of uh, procreation. So I understand why it would be the case that we're more prepared to see men uh, suffer in one regard, that they're just kind of like less – that they need to be less protected and they need to be less valuable. The interesting question, I suppose, is in a modern world where – Women don't need to be coddled so much anymore. We we don't have the same um, physical concerns, and yet we have this mismatch now, where the ability to give sympathy to men who perhaps very much need it isn't there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it is problematic in a modern environment. I, I mean, for both, for multiple reasons. So. Not only that we can't recognize men's suffering, but also that we, if we're more inclined to see women in this like patient role, this like suffering victim role, it makes us it, it harder for us to see them as agentic. And so I think this might contribute to why we more easily recognize men as leaders. And so it's not always, you know, unilaterally positive to see women as like the oh, patient.
0: That's very it, interesting. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so it's like, It can be harmful when you want to, you know, in the voting booth, you're not going to be recognized as an agent and maybe not as a CEO, um, but in the context of moral harm, you're not going to be blamed to the same degree. Did Um, you
0: see, speaking about the, in the voting booth thing, Christina Durante taught me that in a a political race between two women, the woman who loses is the one that has better marital outcomes long-term like her relationship is the one that ends up being better long term Oh her
1: for for her relationship
0: Yes yeah for her uh, private relationship I just thought that was so funny I it just everything gets folded into this I remember seeing a tweet from you as well about a Steve Stewart Williams study Steve Stewart Williams found that people respond more favorably to scientific findings showing women outperform men versus the converse people wrongly assumed men prefer male favoring findings may suggest gender biases in reviews slash publishing of research. What do you think is going on there?
1: Yeah, so I think that because we tend to, you know, see women, we want we want women to to have beneficial beneficial outcomes. We put them in this like let's help the victim category. It can make them more appealing and and easier to support compared to men. If we if we view men as perpetrators and agents, it's easier to see what they're doing as malicious. And so, if we're kind of encountering information that women are have some positive trait, we're like, oh, good. Let's help them.
0: I suppose it- as well. What would be the social signal that would give you? Um, some reflected glory of championing the underdog if you're championing the one that, in terms of a cliche archetype, is already the one that used to do this thing, that used to overperform.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. So you look more beneficial, or you look more pro-social by championing you know, women's success because we assume women are doing worse across the board, which is true at the top end of the distribution, not at the bottom. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that can... I think that's an interesting, it'd be fun to look at like what moral credits do people get for, you know, helping women or promoting these things that help women versus men. We did actually conduct a study, we haven't submitted it yet, but it was um it was a politician talking about men's afflictions in the world and we didn't say what the politicians gender was um so it was them giving a speech talking about all the ways that men are suffering in the world and then in the other condition we just changed men to women and so in that condition, it was the statements were no longer true and because it was about women and women are actually in those contexts doing better. So they're like, you know, not dropping out of school to the same degree as men are. And so what we found is that people liked the politician talking about the female disadvantages, even though their statements were not true. So they liked that politician more, were more likely to vote for that politician, wanted to donate more, perceive them as more moral even though the statements weren't true. And so it was interesting because our male participants identified correctly identified that the statements were less true, but I don't think our female participants did, and so I think there supports some of that bias that I was telling you about where our female participants tended to show more favoritism towards women across the board, which I think makes sense. If we think about our female ancestors, they needed to recruit female allies. So one way to do that might be to signal, hey, I'm on team women, which probably throughout human history was pretty consequential because, say, your male partner was being really violent towards you. You would want a female ally that was team women because she might be more likely to recruit social support on your behalf. But if that occurred enough throughout human history that other women preferred the females that had the female bias, then that might contribute to why we see, you know, modern women today showing this pro-female bias.
0: What is it that women want from a same same-sex friendship? I can see what men want. The coalitional you go kill me, drag back type relationship. Mm
1: -hmm. What is it that women want? So they want someone super nice and very committed to them. Some data suggests they don't want a friend that exceeds them in attractiveness so they don't mind if they're you know have these other admirable attributes but attractiveness seem to be one where women are like mm, she doesn't need to be prettier than i am <laughs> which makes sense because then she's more of a mating rival um and so yeah it. but what data-
0: use what use are these female friends like what what the, you've got someone who is caring and loyal and not that hot um what is it that you want them to do what are you doing with them
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I think this is actually a more complicated question in terms of what is the function of female friends, at least throughout human history. A lot of arguments have been made that female allies were useful for allo care, so helping you care for your children. When I go through the data, I have a hard time finding evidence that it's non-kin providing allo care. So when I look at these non-industrialized groups, what I tend to find is that the... um, the studies suggest that it's genetic kin that tend to be caring for women's offspring, suggesting that it's just that could be predicted by kin selection. And so, in terms of what are non kin female allies doing, I find it more challenging honestly to identify what are the tangible benefits of having these friends because if you look at food provisioning it tends to be men's yields that are shared more widely throughout the group what women bring back tends to be shared more within their families um, and so it's not like they're providing additional food aid and if they're not providing allocare care like what are they doing and so what I suspect a female ally is actually doing is being a kind of coalitional partner in reputational warfare. And so basically that she is protecting your reputation and Hess and Hagen have cool data showing that women are less likely to spread negative gossip about a woman if she has a friend present compared to if she doesn't. So I think having female allies could protect your reputation. They can also shut down a rumor and say, oh my God, no, she's not cheating on her husband or you know, whatever. And then they can also help you be a more effective competitor by spreading your gossip because if gossip is repeated multiple times by independent sources, It's more likely to be believed so if you wanted to take out a rival and you have you know 10 female friends to spread the information it's now distributed much more widely and people are going to believe it more readily compared to if you have no female allies and then there are also sources of reputational ammo so they can bring you information about other same-sex competitors or opposite sex if you wanted to you know take out a man but i think more often women's conversations are about same-sex peers. So I think that what female allies might actually be doing is helping women better compete.
0: But in a social, pro-social, anti-social, reputational gossip way.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, not physical fights, but... <laughs> I'm
0: so glad. Every single day I'm reminded of being, <laughs> being glad that I'm a male. Um, all right. What about opposite-sex friends? Why is it that women would want non-kin, non-partner, male
1: compatriots? The data that I've seen suggests that what we might be doing when we form opposite-sex friends is basically recruiting kind of like backup mates. And so um, that basically the preferences that we espouse for our opposite sex friends look pretty similar to our preferences for mates. And so it suggests we might be cultivating, you know, backup mates and there are some data that people do this explicitly and you know, they'll report being distressed if their backup mate forms a relationship. And so some people do this consciously. My guess is a lot of people might be doing it non-consciously, but still espousing similar preferences. Um, It's possible also that maybe same, or excuse me, opposite sex friends might have served as protection, perhaps if your mate were really aggressive. So we might also be looking for those attributes. Especially if
0: you're patrilocal, right? Because one of the ways that a cost inflicting mate who is doing more mate guarding would typically behave is that they would isolate their partner, their female partner, from uh, brothers fathers, grandfathers, etc. And if you've already been displaced geographically from wherever it is, you're pretty much on your own. And especially when it comes to physical vulnerability, I suppose that having a male friend around to do that. But it also explains, given the fact that you had to really scrape the bottom of the barrel to find a reason that isn't to do with mating for women to have male friends, I think that explains one of the reasons why men get so uncomfortable when their partner, their female partner talks about that f- male friend that they've got at work. And this is what I learned from David Buss's men behaving badly, the failure of cross-sex mind reading, the male overperception and the female underperception bias of attraction, that you have this situation where women and men basically exist in different worlds when it comes to perceiving what's going on. And this failure of ability to work out, to, to model the other person's world very much can cause two people both acting in a true way, acting in a fair and loyal way, to see completely different situations and to actually have an awful lot of friction in their relationship.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, even just the integration of male and female spheres is probably pretty recent, you know? So, probably throughout much of human history, women were spending a lot of time with other women, and men were spending a lot of time with other men. You see this in children, you know, we segregate really early. And so the concept of working with all these opposite-sex peers is probably pretty a pretty novel challenge. And so it would make sense that it would cause a lot of friction if we haven't, you know, encountered it much through human history, that now it's like oh, we just need to adjust to these new conditions.
0: Do you remember when Peterson said on an interview we don't know if this experiment of men and women working together in the workplace has worked out or not do you remember when he said this it was about three or four years ago he got slammed he got absolutely destroyed for it and maybe it needed more context or caveats or maybe it's just the fact that he's a lightning rod for the culture war and anything that he says kind of gets taken as like this is the new headline and we can go after him about like enforced monogamy or whatever but Mm -hmm. um that's a a genuinely interesting question and it also i've been on this thing for a little while that the current framing around uh men and women and their relationships is very adversarial right it's super adversarial that men and women are competing with each other for something i don't know what it is resources or or, or positions within companies or t- status or victimhood uh, position or whatever it is right Men and women for almost all of history kind of really didn't give a shit about each other. Men were off with their men doing their men thing and women were off with their women doing the woman thing. And they would come together, they would have sex, the man would contribute a bit here and there, but for the most part were in different worlds and this is one of the reasons that I've been really trying to drive home this intrasexual competition point because I think it is a really lovely antidote to this adversarial world where men and women don't have the language or the mental models to be able to understand how to compete with each other or why they should compete with each other and they feel like they're on different teams but they kind of really don't have any ground to be able to do it and it causes people to concept creep and just randomly create problems out of nowhere in an attempt to justify post hoc rationalize this reason for some sort of discontent. But when you realise that almost all competition between women is with other women, and almost all competition from men is with other men, I don't know it, it gives me a little bit more breathing room, and it also means that I know right, okay, this is the rules of the game are better defined. I understand how to compete with men. I don't understand how to compete with women, and I don't feel like I do. And yet I'm being told that I am. And yeah, I mm-hmm. think the intrasexual competition thing, in my opinion, is going to be a very important area of research. Um, to publicize, to like really, really get out there because it's this beautiful, um, calming balm antidote to kind of the cultural milieu that we've seen at the moment.
1: I I totally agree. And the argument that now we're portrayed as, you know, men and women are portrayed as antagonistic, I think is true. And I I have some data with some some colleagues, um, my colleague, Carl Aquino um, and Simon. uh, And so what we find is this, when you, when people encounter um, sexual harassment policies that are really strict, and so basically these narratives that sexual harassment is widespread and the consequences are really steep, so the the risks of an accusation are very high. What we find is that corrodes opposite sex benevolence. So people are less willing to work with opposite sex peers. They feel less um, benevolence towards opposite sex peers. They have less um, motivation to engage in romantic and sexual relationships with them. And we even did the study where we asked them, how much do you want to donate to prevent the suicides of opposite sex individuals? And they donated less. And so what I think is going on is that we keep talking about all the ways by which men and women could have antagonistic relationships by focusing so much on sexual, sexual harassment. And sexual harassment is a problem. But when we emphasize it, we are creating this stereotype of men as sexual perpetrators and women as ready to levy an allegation at any behavior perceived as sexual. And so it's creating this, you know, the antagonism it's describing.
0: Who's Marina Gertzberg? Do you know her?
1: Oh, I I think I might have found one of her papers.
0: So this is from my newsletter a little while ago. Uh, Hashtag Me Too has hurt women's careers. Women's productivity fell post-Me Too largely due to fewer collaborations with men. A study of research collaborations involving junior female academic economists showed that they started fewer new research projects after Me Too. The decline is driven largely by fewer collaborations with new male co-authors at the same institution. The drop in collaborations is concentrated in universities where the perceived risk of sexual harassment accusations for men is high. That is, when both sexual harassment policies are more ambiguous, exposing men to a larger variety of claims, and the number of public sexual harassment incidents is high. The results suggest that MeToo is associated with an increased cost of collaboration that disadvantaged the career opportunities of women. MeToo was important to raise awareness, but the intent was not to impose costs on women's careers.
1: Totally. Yeah, I, I think I, I found her paper. And I was like, Oh, my God, this is the same exact pattern. There are other data, yes, yeah, showing that people um are less like so, women don't want to be mentored by a senior male, and that senior males don't want to. They're less willing to mentor junior women. They're less willing to hire attractive women. They don't want to hold one-on-one meetings with women. And so, it doesn't work. Well,
0: that's in similar- that strange that that's that's men, right? That's male mentors that you meant there. Yeah, but
1: so it was both ways. Both. Um, the female- yeah. Yeah.
0: But the point being that we're about to get onto it. Women also don't like attractive women. If men are fearful now in a post Me Too world of collaborating with women, especially attractive women, and women had a genetic, biological predisposition going back tens of thousands of years of not liking attractive women, it's a pretty bad situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not great. It's so it's creating the very thing we'd like to prevent. You know that this hyper focus on everything that could go wrong is creating less mentorship for women if if we want to enhance women's you know career advancement then i think we just we need to have a more nuanced approach of kind of what are the negative externalities of focusing so heavily on these problems which do it's tough because they do warrant attention but it's worth considering how our attention has also created problems.
0: The problem that you have is there is a current trend, I think reinforced by the reward of inflammatory language online, that overcooking or over-egging, over-emphasizing any issue that as yet hasn't been fixed is uh, allowed because we will get there quicker, right? If there is one sexual harassment, that is one too many. That means that we need to continue to hammer the sexual harassment thing. And if we overblow some of the claims or if we make it more aggressive than it needs to be, that doesn't matter because when you compare using words that are slightly more inflammatory to somebody being sexually harassed, they do indeed pale in insignificance. The problem is that you don't get to see these much more below-the-surface, longer-term externalities that come about by... Doing this by overblowing these sorts of topics. There was also another study that you cited saying a more cooperative sex in a meta analysis of social dilemmas, 31,000 people, women were more cooperative in mixed sex interactions, but less cooperative in same sex interactions. Men became more cooperative than women over repeated interactions. What's that?
1: Yeah, so it was um, a large meta analysis of economic games, and it was really interesting because they found that the sex differences in cooperativeness widened over iterations. So, the more games that you were playing with a partner, you found larger disparities between men and women's same sex interactions, such that men became more cooperative and women became less cooperative. And so, what I think is going on there is that women's, women's cooperation was more tit for tat, that if there was one defection, it would lead to defection with women. Um, Whereas men, if there was one defection, they could maybe recover from it. And so I think this gets back to kind of what we were talking about with our female, female ancestors, is that if you want to kind of sustain a cooperative relationship that's through reciprocal altruism, then you're attending to benefits exchanged. And if you're caring a lot about interpersonal loyalty, like who has my back, one defection is a sign that maybe you can't trust that person. And so this meta-analysis is kind of revealing these patterns using really large samples that for women, one defection is hard to recover from. Again, similar to like what Joyce Benenson is finding with the athletes, like that competition is kind of corroding the cooperation. And so I think that this, this information is useful because we can think about, okay, well, maybe then one way to actually help women and promote cooperation is perhaps to focus on forgiveness. If it's the case that we are so attuned to whether this woman is kind, whether this woman is devoted to me, then maybe interventions that focus on forgiveness or like, how do I focus on, for example, all the ways that my friend demonstrated loyalty loyalty to me instead of focusing on the one way that she was not loyal to me or signaled defection. So that might be useful for designing interventions to promote female cooperation because, yeah, these data are suggesting that all it takes is, you know, one defection or maybe one or two defections and then it derails the cooperation.
0: You mentioned about how same-sex friendships for women are kind of um troopers within this reputational army almost um gossip is kind of the the bullets that get fired or it's the the, uh, weapon of choice i suppose what's the what's the use of gossip
1: so gossip one reason that it's advantageous is that it's not physical attack so the reason that women don't engage in physical aggression is because throughout human history these are ann campbell's arguments women were more often caregiving for dependent offspring and so what that meant is that if you die your child is more likely to die. And indeed across cultures and throughout history, children are more likely to die if their mother is not around compared to if their father's not around. And so when women risk physical violence, when they risk injury or death, they are risking those things for their children as well. And so Ann Campbell has argued that's why women do not use physical aggression. And so gossip is indirect. And one of the reasons it's great is because you can deny culpability. You can spread this information without it necessarily being clear that you were the one that spread it. Um, and that's important to prevent retaliation, either in the form of physical violence or reputational violence. You know, So if someone then spreads a rumor about you, you're worse off. And data suggests that gossip is useful because it lowers people's social Appeal. And so, if we were competing for mates and someone spread a rumor that, you know, I've already cheated on my last partner or, um, you know, I'm undesirable for whatever reason, maybe I'm mean. And if that changes a potential mate's decision, that could be the difference between my pairing with someone who could provide for my children and someone who can't. You know, so it's really consequential. And if people are affected by social information, then that's going to be consequential.
0: It seems like women's well-being is a lot more on a knife edge than men's is, both uh, reputationally and uh, physically as well. I know that they've got um, a lower threshold for pain, uh, they've got a lower threshold for infection and other sorts of things, Like just generally physically are more wired to be vulnerable and emotionally Mm -hmm. presumably the same as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one reason, they are more kind of vulnerable, is to be sensitized to these threats. So the argument, um, this is an extension of Ann Campbell's kind of staying alive theory, is that if women needed to stay alive to provide for their children in a way that men maybe didn't, then their one way to stay alive is to be very sensitive to threats, both physical and social. So women are more um, responsive to cues in their body. So they're more interoceptive um, or sensitive to interoceptive cues. They have more nightmares, they have more fears, they have more phobias. And part of that makes sense because you're basically just vigilant to any threat that could harm your well being. Um, but yes, as you're saying, you know, the social vulnerability that is particularly strong because so what another aspect of why women are so vulnerable is one huge component of their mate value is their sexual history. So across human history and across cultures, men tend to show a preference for sexual chastity, at least in their long-term partners. And so what's tough about sexual chastity is it's a negative state. So you can never prove it. You can't prove that you're a virgin. So if someone were, or that you were sexually restrained, if someone were to call you promiscuous, there's really nothing you can do to counteract it. Look at all of
0: this sex that I'm not having
1: exactly and so it's a it's really easy to kind of undermine someone's reputation in that domain because there's no way that they can counteract it whereas for men if you call them physically weak they could lift up something strong if you call them you know not courageous then they could i don't know do some feat that demonstrates that they are courageous so you can't counteract an accusation of promiscuity Um, And that was really consequential to women's mate value and their potential to attract a desirable mate. And so they are also incredibly vulnerable in this way. And so if you don't have allies or if other women dislike you, your reputation could be on the line and that could jeopardize. So
0: steering clear of accusations of sexual indiscretion in the Mm -hmm. past is a big driver of all of the different social setups that women have got that we've gone through so far
1: yeah it's a huge contributor because that is kind of that's like the achilles heel in in some ways of women's reputation like it's very vulnerable because that affected mate value and your ability to attract a mate you can call it into question and you can't undermine those accusations and so That was probably. And and if you look at the information that women tend to guard, it's really interesting because women tend to disclose a lot about themselves um, to their friends. But their sexual history is one kind of piece of information that they keep close to the chest. They don't share that as willingly. Um, And I've also found that sexual information tends to pretty strongly harm women's reputation and their desirability as friends, romantic partners. Um, so other women tend to dislike promiscuous women, um, partially, I think they do that for two reasons. One is to signal how sexually chaste they are like, Oh God, I would never do that. And then two is to avoid the woman that could steal your mate. So if you have a reputation of being sexually promiscuous, that's going to harm your desirability to other women, but also to men, at least as a long-term partner, if men are prioritizing sexual chastity. Uh, in their long-term mating decisions.
0: Does that mean that women's preparedness to talk about their sexual history is mediated by the local sex ratio? Have you looked at this?
1: No, that's interesting.
0: Wouldn't that be cool? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. If, th-
0: if you were in an environment where there was tons of men and women started to become more open about their sexual past?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are, so yeah, uh, Dave Schmidt has data that women become more unrestricted in their sexuality when they are in um, actually more female bias. Correct. Yeah, they need to
0: play by the rules of the men.
1: Exactly. But there are also data that when women are when the sex ratio is more skewed towards women, men and women diverge further in their purity concerns. And so what I think might be going on there is women might be trying to signal their sexual purity in these contexts where there's strict competition for men. So maybe there's kind of two routes. You could either go the sexual route and play by men's rules, or you could signal, I am not going to do that, you know, and I'm going to be so pure. So then at least I get selected for the long term. Oh,
0: very <clears throat> interesting. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really fascinating duality of what's going on because... The The problem that you have with a woman who's prepared to give it away on the first or second date is that she is going to outcompete compete the woman that wants to make you wait until the third or the fourth date, and that may be able to capture that man. But there is the Madonna whore kind of hypo- mm-hmm. uh, paradox or whatever it's called where positioning a woman in one particular bucket as easy or whatever – and I, you know I know this from my own life that the girls that I've got into long-term relationships with – have very rarely been ones that I've slept with within the first few dates. It's always been the ones that I've ended up sticking about for longer. Now, is that because I knew that it was a longer-term investment? Is that because of some sort of um, increased closeness when it comes to mate value so you know that they can't give it up so much and the ones that have the higher mate value are the ones that you're going to get in the relationship with for longer? Like There are a whole bunch of different ways that it plays about, but I totally know what you mean that you could have this sort of forking – In a high female skewed sex ratio ecology, you could have a double pronged assault. But what you would actually want to have as a woman is to um, show sexual chastity publicly no matter what is happening
1: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. because there is no real advantage to showing that you are easy. And Mm -hmm. then privately, that's when the uh, different strategy would come through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like your your game. it it is challenging to navigate because it's like, okay, well, there's so much competition and they've done studies, at least in like these female skewed environments and universities. Women feel pressured to have sex sooner. And so there is this feeling of like, well, okay, if everybody else is doing it, you know, who's going to be willing to wait for those four dates or however long you would normally want to wait. And so women do feel pressured to have sex sooner than they would otherwise. But then you also get this pattern of this like purity concern. And so maybe one strategy would be, I'm going to signal that I'm, you know, so high mate value that I'm not going to have sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think that different women are going to have different abilities to leverage that so based
0: on their mate value
1: yeah so you probably would find that that would be correlated with which strategy they're going to use if you can afford to wait longer you should but that, of course that's not easy you know that's not going to be true for everyone
0: yeah so it's not just going to be your mate value it's going to be your mate value in relation to the man that you are with so you could imagine a situation in a high female skewed sex ratio ecology where a high mate-value woman and a moderate mate-value man, the woman may play still by her own sort of slightly more chastity rules in order to get more investment from the man in advance of and then also kind of bypass that Madonna, Madonna whore complex thing. So what about slut-shaming is like if, that, if the sexual derogation of rivals and kind of the gossip and rules is like the sniper rifle, slut-shaming is kind of like the dirty bomb that you just throw across the entire mating market in an attempt to raise the supposed price of sex. Have you done much research about slut-shaming?
1: So, yeah. So I've, I've found that it tends to be predicted by the particular threat of the woman that you are shaming. And so my research has found that women are more likely to share negative reputational information, particularly about women's you know sexual history, when the other woman is attractive, when she is um, provocatively dressed, or if she flirts with their romantic partner. So it's more, and it's more tailored to the particular mating threat that each woman poses. However, I've seen other, informi- other data that find that women are more strongly oppose female promiscuity when they have more male sons. So I believe this is Candace Blake's work, where it was kind of like support for female veiling. I've got her and, on
0: the show. I've got her on the show next week, so I'll ask her about this.
1: Oh, her stuff is the best. Yeah, she's uh, great. Yeah, and so yeah, that women condemn. Um, they they more strongly supported restrictions on female promiscuity when they had more sons. So basically, when they had more interest in their sons paternity certainty. And so I think that is one ecological factor is like, when does paternity certainty matter? And that's when you're gonna see more clamping down on female promiscuity. So they've done some work finding that when women um, in the environment depend more on men's provisioning, that's when you see more strong, more intense condemnation of women's sexual promiscuity. And so you would predict that over time, as we as women become less and less dependent on men's resources to survive and care for their children, you're going to see fewer and fewer restrictions on women's sexuality.
0: Wow. So that would suggest in a world where women are out-educating and out-earning men, especially at younger ages, in a world where women, it is popular both... Uh, socially in terms of how you grandstand and uh, to proselytize around how women are the victim and they're the ones that need to be upheld, you could see a situation in which more loose sexual norms or less derogation of loose sexual norms would be something that would be opened up due to the fact that women need less resource provisioning from the men around them. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm fuck that's cool
1: yeah and it makes sense that like society would have an interest men themselves would have an interest in restricting women's sexuality when they need to be certain this is my biological child before i provision resources you're going to see in those contexts that men should value women's chastity because then they could be more certain and i am provisioning resources to my genetic offspring Um, and then in those cases when men aren't provisioning those resources. They don't need to be as concerned. Society doesn't need to be as concerned if children are still surviving and thriving without men's being confident and therefore investing these resources.
0: That is cool. Okay. So other than sex, what else do women gossip about?
1: Um, They tend to derogate. Well, so they share information about women's at least my research has found that they also share information about how other women have treated them. And so they share information about their friend's treatment, their friend's transgressions against themselves. Um, And so this is work that I've done with Jamie Palmer Hogg. And what we argue is that this strategy is a way to spread gossip without appearing malicious. So if I were to tell you like, oh, Mary really hurt me the other day. She made this comment about how I've gained weight and that like really hurt my feelings. I sound so much nicer than if I'm like, God, Mary's such a bitch. She's always making me feel bad and like saying all these rude things. Like I sound mean when I say it that way, but when I frame it as Mary did this thing that really hurt me, um, then you don't recognize me as a gossiper. And I've shared that same information that Mary's probably a bit cruel (laughs) But you think very differently of me and so we studied this and what we found is that women are pretty sensitive to how their friends treat them and that this sensitivity compels repeating those transgressions to other people and so they share this information with others and then when people hear this information, they are less likely to view women as gossipers and they like them more when they frame it as a first-person victimization. Mary did this to me compared to, we manipulated whether they said it as a third-person statement. So Mary did this to Susan. People are better at recognizing that's gossip, Mm -hmm. but they don't recognize it if it's your personal story. I think we maybe just have some belief like, oh, it's your story to tell. That doesn't count as gossip. Yet, it's still harming other women's reputation. So what we found is these types of statements like Mary was mean to Susan or made this mean comment about her. People disliked the female perpetrators more than they disliked the male perpetrators. So if a guy is saying like, Oh, Bob was mean to Steve. People don't get as worked up about Bob being mean to Steve as they do about Mary being mean to Susan. So when we manipulated the sex of who's saying these things, it was more consequential for women's reputations than for men's reputations.
0: What's the bless her heart effect?
1: Oh, this is kind of another version of that where I looked at kind of what are the indirect ways that women spread information. Um, And so this was my dissertation. And so this was... Basically trying to show that the way by which women spread gossip or one way that they spread gossip is to frame it as pro-social concern. So if I were to tell you like, oh, Tammy's been sleeping around a lot and I'm just I'm really worried she's going to get hurt or taken advantage of versus Tammy's such a slut. You know, same thing where I don't appear mean or cruel if I frame it as I'm just so worried about her. And so I did kind of a similar study where I manipulated these statements where I gave people the same factual information like Tammy has been sleeping around a lot lately. And then at the end, it ended with I'm so worried about her or what a slut or there was nothing there. And so what I found is that if you say it with concern, people prefer you as a social partner relative to who you're talking about. But if you say it meanly, if you say what a slut, people actually don't like you. And if anything, they you've actually harmed your reputation more than who you're talking no, about.
0: You've, you've taken the mask off around this flagrant status
1: removal. Yeah. And so people see through that when it's that overt and they don't actually like you. So it's really malicious gossip carries social costs. And so that would favor kind of these really indirect forms of gossip that we might not recognize as gossip and the data suggests people don't recognize it as readily and so it's basically a way to harm your same-sex rivals reputations without incurring social penalties
0: who are the most common uh, victims or who are the who which sorts of women are the most common targets of gossip
1: So they tend to be women who are attractive, but particularly sexually provocative. Those women get targeted the most. Um, And then other women who are kind of competitive or really status-driving and agentic, they also get targeted by other women's aggression. And so it suggests that women are kind of taking out anyone who could be a threat in the mating domain, or anyone who's not a very useful cooperative partner, not as, you know, altruistic.
0: Mm, that's very interesting. The um, attractiveness thing is such a double-edged sword, right? Because we hear about the halo effect or pretty privilege, and I, I, it would be almost impossible to do because what outcomes is it that you're going to judge for? But it'd be fascinating to work out what is the optimal amount of good-lookingness that a, <laughs> that a girl should have. Because if you are better looking than 99 out of 100 other women, all of them are going to have a reason to have a problem with you. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a world in which it would be better to be 90th percentile good looking Mm. because at least there would be a small number of women above and below you that you would be able you said most women want to have friends that are kind of around about their attractiveness level at least Mm -hmm. you would be able to have a coalition of friends like that whereas if you're 99 out of 100 who are you going to be friends with
1: yeah unless i think the only way you could get away with like being really attractive is if you have super low self-esteem and just talk about how insecure you are like
0: self-derogation
1: yeah overly nice yeah, overly nice, not trying to steal anyone else's mates. But I mean, people have eyes, so I don't know how far <laughs> that, would, that would go.
0: <laughs> M- Michael Malice, who you may or may not know, is a good friend of mine. And he is a professional troll on the internet, great writer, great podcaster, very smart guy. He has made a profession out of winding people up, right, online. Right. Uh, and he once said to me, if I was three inches taller, I wouldn't be able to say half of the things that I can and he's i think he's maybe like five six five seven something like that so he's like a shorter guy and uh yeah he said and i think that there's something similar going on there it's more on the male side obviously but there's something about being seen as less of a potential threat especially for men physically right look at what he said it's not about his attraction he didn't change his attraction he changed his threat level his his formidability and um yeah, if I was 3 inches taller I wouldn't be able to say half of the shit that I do.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think I think height is probably one of the domains that's like most comparable to women's feelings about their bodies. Like that is, you know, something that we observe women care about in their mating preferences and other men derogate one another based on their height, which I just find so mean and unnecessary. But I also just don't, (laughs) I find male male interaction. So interesting how there's so much derogation and that's how like they bond with each other. Whereas like, for women, it's the exact opposite. Like, I would never make a rude comment about my same sex friend's appearance. That's like the last thing. You would be, you, you would have no friends. How if, are like, you,
0: Mary? You're looking particularly full today. You must have had lots of gluten last night.
1: Can you imagine? You know, it's the exact opposite. Women are like, no, 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 you're so beautiful. What do you you mean? No, you look great. And then men are just like, could you be shorter? You know, like just so harsh to each other. It's just like night. It feels like night and day when you observe like within sex interactions.
0: (laughs) What was that study that you did about how female competition changes approaches to diet and self-image?
1: Oh, yeah. So I've done a few studies related to that. Um, So one study was um, looking within married couples, we found that when women were the more, excuse me, the less attractive partner, um, and their husbands were really attractive, they tended to feel worse about themselves and feel more motivated to diet um, and exercise. So that suggests there is kind of some relative comparisons we make within our mateship of like okay you know how but interestingly it didn't affect men's motivations to diet and lose weight now perhaps we would have found you mean
0: if if the men were of lower mate value
1: in, or at least we looked at attractiveness. Right. Okay. We didn't look at things like income, so maybe you would find that. And we didn't look at drive for muscularity, so that might be where we would find it, where men tend to show stronger drives for muscularity, and that's like kind of the way their body dissatisfaction the manifests. Now, so that suggests like this is a domain, at least in the mating world, that women care about is like being relatively attractive to retain their established mateships. But women also use their appearance to attract mateships um, and preserve the ones that they have. And so this other study that I conducted, it looked at the sex ratio of the local environment and found that when women perceive there to be more women in the environment, they perceive there to be more intense mating competition, and then they feel worse about their bodies and feel more motivated to like diet and lose weight. And so this would make sense that when there's more, you know, same sex rivals, basically if we're making relative comparisons, then you're falling farther and farther from the ideal. If there are more and more women around you, the likelihood that you're the most attractive is now lower. And so you have more women you're competing you're, with.
0: Yeah, you're, you're 99 out of 100, but only 990 out of 1000
1: yeah yeah so there's there's more intense competition, and in women's you know intrasexual competition for mates tends to focus at least in one domain on their physical attractiveness, and so it led to more body dissatisfaction and a greater desire to lose weight and so I think that this might be consequential if we think of you know modern universities, the sex ratio is becoming more and more skewed towards more women um and so this might not actually be even though we might be like, yay, more women are getting their degrees. you know, We might value it for these other reasons. It might not feel really great for the women who are on those campuses to be surrounded Desperately by- Desperately
0: dieting because there's loads of hot women around them.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it, it is worth noting that there's, you know we are designed to make relative comparisons. So throughout human history, we were in relatively small groups, like 50 to 200. And so maybe the people that you were competing with for a mate was just like a handful, maybe a dozen people. And it mattered whether you were the most attractive or the least attractive. It didn't really matter your absolute level of attractiveness. It mattered how you compared because that predicted your um, likelihood of, you know, landing the most desirable, relatively desirable mate. And so because we evolved in these contexts, our brains still make these relative comparisons even though in really large populations, we probably shouldn't be doing that it's as almost
0: much. impossible to be one of the most attractive people.
1: Yeah. And I'm then right. if
0: you, if, sorry, if you globalize <laughs> the uh, sexual comparison marketplace with Tinder and Instagram and OnlyFans and TikTok, you're basically saying, okay, now let's compete with 7
1: billion people. Right. And so we're like wrongly interpreting them as our relevant peer groups, you know, and I I wonder if social media is like particularly bad because they feel like our peers. You know, when I'm scrolling through a magazine, I'm not thinking this celebrity is my peer. I don't know, for some reason it's less distressing compared to if I'm on social media, even though I could be just as removed from this woman's life as, you know, Taylor Swift. It's still, they feel like peers. And so this might be particularly bad because we're designed to make relative comparisons with our peer group. So if we're interpreting them as peers, they might be, you know, particularly problematic.
0: Didn't Candace do something about sexy selfies as well in areas of particularly high female uh, sex ratio split?
1: So I believe what she found with the sexy selfies was that they were more prevalent in context where there was greater income inequality.
0: Oh shit! Yes, it was. You're right. It was. Yes. Fuck. Why? Why? What? Yeah. Why is that the case?
1: Her argument was that there's more competition for the few men at the top. So basically, when there are some men that have all the resources and a lot of men who have none, that there is steep competition for the few men at the top. You know, you're not going to be very well served if you're with the men that don't have access to resources when there are such high payoffs to being with the men that have all the resources.
0: Do you think that the current mating crisis, sex ratio skew in universities, hypergamy creating this sort of baseline of women dating up and across an ever increasing group of high performing women competing from ever decreasing group of high performing men. Do you think that that is motivating an increasingly sexualized culture for women to step into?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I I think in some ways, yes, but then I also see kind of also this like backlash culture of kind of not needing a man, you know? So for these women that are really high achieving, these like female CEOs, you know, who are, who are they going to mate with? There's gonna be a very limited pool of men that have more resources than they do. And at least the data suggests that women who have high access to resources don't decrease their preference for resources very much. If anything, they just want it all. And so it suggests that they're going to be pretty limited in their options. But I also think there's like this like kind of counterculture of like, you know, to be the ultimate woman, you don't need a man. And so full
0: Sigma female mode.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So then you might be just like, saying more, you know, I know some women who are really successful that are just going, like, kind of the sperm donor route.
0: I've got a couple of friends that are the same. Both of them are female millionaires, yeah.
1: Yeah, and to hear about the process is actually so cool. They have – I didn't know that they have this – they have voice clips, so you can listen to voices of the men who donated the sperm, and I do think that that's, like, useful information to get a sense. It's more uh, useful
0: than going like that with a test tube, isn't it? Yeah, so (laughs) I wonder whether – a genuine polarized counterculture to a hypersexualized world in which women are being more sexually promiscuous, at least online, doing more sexy, sexy selfies, etc. I would have said that the opposite of that would have been like a trad culture. It would have been conservatism. What I think the boss bitch lean in lifestyle that you're talking about is is more of a cope. I think that's an inner citadel that women are retreating to when they're struggling to find men. I don't think that that's the opposite, and I'm completely pulling this out of my ass, but I don't think that that's necessarily the opposite energy of this over-sexualized world. I think that it is high-achieving women outright realizing shit. I have managed to rise to the top of my own uh, dominance hierarchy or competence hierarchy. I'm looking across and above, and there's no one there. Uh, I'm I'm not going to let go of the things that I've got. I can't go back so I'm just going to go on on my own. I think that a, a true counterculture kind of culture would be something like the trad conservative side, which is also what is trad and conservatism? Well, that's sexual chastity, right? That's purity just coming up again. So it's another sexual strategy that just happens to appear in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it'll be so interesting to see. And maybe it's like, kind of like what we were talking about. Like maybe you'll just find this like forking of like two different strategies, you know, one's going the super chase route, one's going the, sexually uninhibited, you know, men are, you know, disposable it, or rejecting men altogether. altogether.
0: Those are the three main strategies I think that I genuinely think that look Tanya, you are absolutely fantastic. I very very much appreciate your time today. Why
1: Where not? should people
0: go? What are you doing next? When are you going to write a book? Rob Henderson wants to know when you're going to write a book.
1: <laughs> I would love to. Um I think it'd be so much fun. Um, I do want to write a new, I want to write a new theory paper about women's strategy to evoke care. Like if you even look at women's, um, like their faces, they're, they're more neatness. Like women tend to have like, like larger eyes, like they're more, their body structure is literally more like children. Um, and so I think it'd be fun to just write a whole paper on like how women are designed to evoke care from others. And that's a way by which that they, Survives throughout human history there was um, a
0: Rutger Bregman wrote a book called humankind and in that he talked about the puppification of humans and that was the same thing that evoking of some sort of uh, sense of of care
1: I love that the puppification <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I mean it's not this not the slickest word in the world uh let's <laughs> say that someone's loved what they've heard today where should they go to check out more of your work and follow the stuff that you do
1: uh You can find some of my work on ResearchGate and then I'm on Twitter as Tanya Arlene. Um, But yeah, not super active on it because I I think it might be bad for mental health. So I'm trying to be productive instead.
0: (laughs) I like it. Tanya, I appreciate the hell out of you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. This has been...